Alrighty. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that uh, as we're opening it up and digging into it, that you would open up our hearts, and that, uh, that we would be surrendered and, and receptive to what you want to say to us. I pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each and every one of us, and that we would draw closer to you uh, just through our time here tonight. And it's in your name we pray. So, tonight we are going to cover the book of Job, also known as the book of Job. Uh, Job is technically the correct pronunciation, but it looks an awful lot like Job. Um, So, uh, Job's a a fascinating book uh, for a lot of reasons, actually. Uh, It's probably uh, either the oldest or the second oldest book of the Bible. It uh, probably was written before any other books in the Bible. It probably takes place uh, sometime between the flood and uh, kind of Abraham's era. And uh, for, we presume that for a couple reasons. One, uh, there's no mention anywhere in the book of Job to the nation of Israel. There's no mention to Abraham himself. So there's really, you know, Job isn't looking back at these guys. So uh, he's presumably before them. There's also a lot of references uh, to snow and ice, so there's reason to assume that maybe Job is actually writing this during the ice age that would have come after Noah's flood. Um, but so there's that kind of interesting side. But uh, Job's also just an interesting book in that it gives us um, a super fascinating perspective into the question of suffering. And suffering is uh, it's a it's a it's a sticky thing to wrap our minds around. Because there's not these nice, clean, tight answers, and simultaneously, uh, it's very real to us. You know, there are things that we can't wrap our heads around that is sort of okay, like the grace of God. Well, I can't really understand how God's grace can forgive my sins, and somehow, you know, it's, I'm fully justified and fully brought into the family of God, but I can believe it. Uh, and part of why I can believe it is, in a sense, because it's a little bit abstract, and I can sort of wrap my head around, I'll understand it someday, right? And, and the idea of, you know, what is eternity, and what does it mean that God's outside of time, those are things that are important, but, but truthfully, it's sort of easy for us to compartmentalize them into the things that we don't understand, and we don't really need to understand. But suffering is a tricky thing because it's so real. It's so here, right? It's so... Uh, yeah, that's great, but what about my problem right now? And Job gives us just a really interesting perspective. Um, And so in that sense, we're very thankful for the book of Job because Job does help us see as Christians some elements of suffering that we wouldn't see otherwise. Uh, Simultaneously, that doesn't make Job necessarily the most exhilarating book in the Bible to read. Um, But it's uh, it's a super valuable book in, in the scriptures, and so it's very much worth our while. Um, so we're just going to kind of start off. Job is actually written really nicely in that there's basically two chapters that are super critical, and then there's about 35 chapters of a lot of philosophy, most of which is completely bunk, and then there's a couple chapters right at the end that are super good. And so you can do a very nice condensed version of Job um, pretty well. There's actually a pastor uh, who I really like listening to in California, and he you know, like a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors, he teaches through the Bible, usually does a couple chapters a week uh, until he gets to Job, and then he does 42 chapters, and then he goes into Psalms and does a couple chapters a week. And, and, I've, and I've watched him do it now at least twice. Uh, he gets there and he's like, yep, okay, 
middle of the book is, is mostly just man's opinions. But so with that being said, we're going to start off in the beginning. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. It's quite an introduction. But what we're told is there's this guy named Job. He lives in the land of Uz. There's not a ton of detail on where Uz is. It's probably right next to China and Canaan and Milton. Um... And he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. That's a pretty stellar list of uh, his spiritual depth, right? Uh, that gets said about you, that's a pretty good deal. Uh, he has 10 children, he has a lot of possessions, he has 7,000 sheep, he has 3,000 camels in a world where a camel, truthfully, would be probably uh, closest equivalent, equivalent would be like a BMW. Uh, and so he has... You know, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 BMWs, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. Uh, he has 10 kids, and they all get along well, so he's got a great family. And he's basically, they all enjoy hanging out together. And Job, uh, he's a spiritual man. He also cares about the spiritual condition of his children because he prays for them. And, and he's always trying to intercede on their behalf to the Lord. And so we're getting a picture here. All right, like any, any good story, there's an introduction. This is the introduction to Job. And the introduction is, this is a godly guy. This is a man who is trying to serve the Lord as best he can. He's been blessed with a lot of material stuff. He's been blessed with a big family. But the short, answer, the short summary is, this is a great guy. And it's important for us to grasp that going in to sort of see what happens next. And so then starting in verse 6, it says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has? On every side you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. That paragraph right there uh, is... Probably one of the, the weirdest paragraphs to try and wrap our heads around conceptually because it just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We have these, all, we have, it doesn't fit in a lot with a lot of our cultural expectations of, what it, of what, who Satan is and, and who God is and, and some of those things. So there's a day when this, it says the sons of God are presenting themselves before the Lord. That's basically a term for angels, okay? So the angels are coming by and Satan's there. So the good angels and the bad angels are coming by. And God says, Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. So first thing we learn is Satan is not omnipresent, right? We know from scriptures that God is everywhere at once and he hears everything at once and he's, he's attentive to every single one of us at once in a way that we really can't fully grasp. Satan is not. 
We sometimes, you know, I think it's in Isaiah, it says when Satan's finally judged, everyone who looks at him is going to say, that's it? Like, I expect him to be, you know, taller or whatever. Um, But Satan is not everywhere at once. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not the opposite of God. There is no such thing as the opposite of God because you can't truly have pure evil without an idea of what good is because you can't understand evil unless you can understand that it's the opposite of something. So you can't have a pure opposite of God. Satan is a corrupted version of an angel, all right? But he can't be everywhere at once. And God says, if you consider Job, and uh, some people would say in the Hebrew, it's actually more like a statement, like you've been, you've been watching Job, haven't you? And Satan says, uh, yeah. And he says, you know, God says, yeah, there's nobody like Job, which is a pretty high compliment. You know, if the Lord said, hey, there's nobody like that guy, that's, that's pretty good stuff. And, Joe, and Satan says, uh, yeah, duh, thank you. Uh, you won't let me touch him. You've given him all kinds of money. You've got him in this nice, cushy, little, posh life. Why wouldn't he thank you, right? Job is living in this facade of reality that he thinks is blessing. If you take those things away, I guarantee you Job is not the man you think he is. And God says, you're not allowed to touch Job personally, but you're allowed to see what you can do. And it doesn't really, truthfully, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And it feels, I think it makes us feel vulnerable in a sense. Like, is God, you know, gambling on us? And, and it, can, it can put us in this weird sense sometimes of like, well, what is, is this, you know, is this, are we, does this make God like less than all good? Does this make God like, you know, petty? Or like, what is, what is it doing with our perception of God? And this is where Job helps us understand other pieces of Scripture. But the rest of Scripture helps us understand Job. And so we have to, as we're reading these, uh, connect this with the rest of Scripture. What do we know about God, all right? And that's where we're going to sort of have to bring ourselves throughout the book of Job. And so, uh, verse 13, Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So Job suffers. That's no matter how you slice it or try and uh, put a good spin on it. Job suffers. He loses all his wealth, all his possessions, and all his children. Uh, before he has time to even process them happening in a sequence. And what's Job's response? Then Job arose, verse 20, and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job loses everything he's got, and he says, You know what? When I came out as a mortal human being, I didn't have anything. And when I die, I'm not going to take any of it with me. And so if the Lord wants to do with it, what, so it really is all the Lord's anyways. And if he wants to do something with it that I don't understand, that's his call. And Job worships the Lord in that moment of grief. And it's, just, it's an incredible statement about the depth of his character. 
And so we're going to watch the book of Job progress. And basically what's happening is Satan is trying to get Job to curse God. He is trying to push Job to a tipping point. And um, so he goes on in chapter 2. Basically, the same scenario starts to unfold, and Satan goes before the Lord again and says, yeah, of course anybody could worship. It's easy to worship you after you lose all your stuff and all of your kids. Anybody can do that as long as they're still healthy. And God says, you are not allowed to kill Job, but you're allowed to make him sick. And so Satan goes, and Job is, um, says he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a pot shard to scrape himself while he's sitting among the ashes. So he's cleaning off his puss with a broken piece of pottery sitting in a pile of ash after he's lost all his kids, all his wealth, and everything that he possessed. Job's suffering, right? Job is going through some hard stuff. And, and, and you know, and it's a great, in a sense, it's a great picture for us because, uh, truthfully, I don't think any of us are ever going to top Job in the suffering department. And so each one of us can, as we're reading the book of Job, find comfort. We can find solace in this because, okay, Job is going through this. And we all have real stuff. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Uh, Christianity never denies the reality of suffering. And that's part of what makes it an interesting uh, a, a standalone religion amongst all the religions of the world is we never deny the reality of suffering. And we also don't deny that sometimes we don't fully understand it. But Job, once again, uh, he is not going to let go of his integrity. And at this point, Job's wife has had enough. Uh, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said to her, you're speaking like a foolish woman. So interestingly, just as a little tangent, Satan decides he's going to remove everything of uh, value in Job's life. So he leaves his wife. Uh, which is just, you know, for what it's worth, if you're going to be a wife, be the kind of wife that Satan would want to take out if he was trying to impact your man, um, right? I mean, you just, I'm just saying, it's just there in the scriptures, you just got to acknowledge it. So Job says, babe, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job is going through all this stuff, and Job is still willing to say, I do not understand. I don't get it. I don't enjoy it. He, he's, not, he's not being delusional. Right, like Buddhism teaches that suffering is all just a state of mind, and if you can elevate yourself above that, suffering is, is all it's all in your head, and it's not real. Well, Job isn't saying that. Job is sitting in the ash pit, scraping the pus out of his boils with a broken piece of clay. His suffering is real. He's not saying, you know, this is just a matter of I haven't fully been enlightened yet. He is he's in suffering, and he's but he's willing to accept that the Lord is doing something. And now we get the story starts to shift. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment to come together to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him for they saw that his pain was very great. So Job has three friends who come to try and comfort him. If you have three friends at this point in your life, that's a pretty good deal. And these three friends actually want to legitimately be a comfort to Job. And they spend, they show up and he is so disfigured that they don't recognize him at first. And they weep 
for him. You know, the Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. They don't show up and tell Job, uh, Job, but this is all in your head. They don't show up and tell Job, dude, just snap out of it. They, for, for a whole week, seven days and seven nights, they sit there and say nothing except comfort Job with their presence. And as the story goes on, that's the smartest thing they say in the entire book. And truthfully, uh, as we're trying to walk in the sermon, if we are with somebody who is suffering, there's a time and a place to, to offer encouragement, but oftentimes presence is the most comforting thing. And trying to come up with something to say for the sake of filling the silence is usually, uh, usually unless you're, you know, and sometimes it's necessary, but it's oftentimes not necessarily the best approach. So that brings us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 through chapter 37. Uh, Job and his friends are going to wind up arguing. His friends come to try and encourage Job, but then Job starts expressing his frustration because he's legitimately frustrated. And his friends start saying, well, wait a second, Job. If you're this frustrated, if you're going through all this, obviously there must be a reason. And so what happens is then they start to go down this trail of, well, Job, you know, really bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And so if you have bad things happening to you, that means you're a bad person. And if you just, if you confess right now, we could get this over with, God will restore everything, and you could have your best life now. And, and Job says, guys, I don't have hidden sin. And they say, Job, you have to have a hidden sin. There is no way that suffering happens to innocent people. And it's 30, what is it, 34, 35 chapters of them going back and forth, right? It's some of the most like high philosophy, eloquently written verse in all of scripture. And it's mostly inaccurate, okay? So just, if you ever see a verse out of the book of Job on a wall plaque or whatever, back up, put it in its context. There are some, you know, they make some great points. This is what makes Job, this is what can make Job a challenging read, is as Job's friends uh, are talking, and as Job is talking, they're gonna make some good points, and then they're gonna misapply them. Or they're going to make, you know, a good train of thought with either a bad beginning or a bad end. And so their whole point is lost. So we have to read all these chapters with discernment to say, okay, wait a second. What is he saying? Who's talking? What's the context here? Okay. So, but there are some things that are just worth sort of noticing. Uh, In chapter 11, his friend Zophar, well, in chapter 10, uh, chapter 9 and 10, Job goes on and he's, he's, Complaining sounds like you're, you're being negative to Job, but he is complaining. Uh, but he's pouring out his grief. And chapter 11, Then Zophar the Namath I answered, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? <clears throat> to which the answer is, Yeah, sometimes they should. Right? Job, you're just saying so many things, I just, I just have to say something. No, sometimes you don't have to say something. Sometimes the best thing you can do is say nothing. And then uh, in verse 13, as Zophar is going on, he says, Job, if you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear for you would forget your trouble. Job, if you would just be perfect, there wouldn't be any problems here. And, what's the, and, what, and to which we say, you know, he's actually technically right, okay? If I could live a perfect life, I wouldn't have any problems. But what's the catch? We're all sinners. We are all born with a sin nature. 
None of us are perfect. So yeah, so far, he's trying to be encouraging. Job, if you could just act like God, there wouldn't be any problems here. That's great, except here's the catch. Job isn't God. Job is living in a sinful body on a sinful planet, right? And so Job goes on with his friends and he starts to get, as it goes on and on, you know, he's trying to figure out, he's doing a lot of processing. But um, in chapter 19, verse 25, He's still, he's hanging on still. And he says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself will behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. Job, Job is hanging on to the hope that God is still in control because he has nothing else to hang on to. And, and that's, you know, that's a scary place to be. But Sooner or later, just about all of us will hit that point where, uh, I think it was Corey Ten Boom, who said you'll never realize that God is all you need until God is all you have. And there's a lot of truth in that statement. And so Job right now, he is hanging on to the Lord by a thread, but he is hanging on because he has nothing else. And so it goes on, um, and then, you know, Job's friends say, no, Job, that's not your hope. Your hope is to confess this hidden sin that you have. And Job says, I don't have a hidden sin. And his buddy Eliphaz, uh, in chapter 22, gives him this whole list of like hypothetical sins. Like He starts accusing Job uh, with just these massive blanket statements, almost like he's trying to watch for the response and see if he can get Job to, you know, to blank or whatever. And he says, you know, from the hungry you've withheld bread, and you've sent widows away empty, and... Um, and you've, you know, doing all these things, and he, he, he's making all these stupid accusations. But what we see in chapter 23, Job starts to make this little pivot. And it's subtle, but it's, it's, it's very important for us to watch because it's very dangerous, uh, and we're very at risk of making the same jump in, in logic our thought, ourselves. And what happens in chapter 23 is Job starts to, you know, basically, when Job's suffering first comes, Job says, I don't understand, but God's got a plan. And then as he's going on, Job says, basically, this is hard, this is grievous, this is, I cannot bear this. And then he starts to make this point of, and all this is happening because God's not fair. And, and, it, and it's this, you know, it's, it seems like a bit of a natural progression, but when Job gets to this point, Job starts to make some dangerous assumptions about the character of God. And in, uh, well, just starting in, in Verse 1 of chapter 23, Then Job replied, Even today, my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. You know, I'm, I'm crying out and God's still being rough on me. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No. Surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Job says, you know what? God is unfair and God owes me an explanation. And this is the great, this is, you know, the great challenge of suffering. Because here's the deal. We live in a sinful world and we can wrap our heads around the fact that uh, evil has entered the world because of sin, because mankind broke God's covenant with us. There's sin in the world, okay? And so we can understand, even to a point, some of the, the natural effects of that, um, you know, when, when there's hurricanes and fires and things like that, we can sort of wrap our heads around, well, it's a cursed earth. But when it's, you know, when it, the, the more personal suffering gets, the more personal evil feels, the harder it is for us to, to grasp it. And the danger is we can start to weigh 
our actions against our experiences and say, well, I've done this, therefore God owes me this. And I've, you know, I've served God for this long, so God owes me an explanation. If I had a chance to talk to God right now, I would explain to him why he should be listening to me. His judgments are heavy on me despite all my groanings, right? If I, if I knew where God was seated right now, I'd fill my mouth with some answers and some arguments. And would he, and would he cut me off? No, sir. He would pay attention to me. And it's, just, it's, a, it's a subtle progression, right? But when we suffer and when we go through hard things, that, that right there is really the great thing that we must avoid. We cannot demand that God owes us something. And, and God responds, okay? So it goes on for a few more chapters, and then this fourth guy comes along. And um, chapter 38, God shows up. Chapter 38, verse 1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, he doesn't reference any one of them specifically, so it's reasonable to assume that he's referencing all four of them or five of them at this point. Who's darkening the counsel, right? You guys are all passing out counsel. It's like, you know, you're all handing out candle snuffers in a dark room. This isn't getting us anywhere. So, Gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Job, you informed me just a couple chapters ago that if you had a chance to talk to me, you would ask me some questions because you thought I owed you an explanation. So I'm here. And you said that you would hear what I had to say, and then you'd give me a piece of your mind. So I'm gonna, I have a couple questions I'd like to ask you, and then it's your turn. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched a line upon it? So God here, he gets a little bit sarcastic with Job. And he's not being cruel with Job, but he's saying, Job, here's the deal. You do not have the right to tell me what to do. And this is, you know, sometimes when we we look at suffering, we want these nice, cute answers. And the Bible's interesting in that it gives us the explanation for why suffering is here. It doesn't give us... Uh, you know, and that is that sin entered the world and that until the Lord comes to earth again and there's a new heaven and a new earth, that there's a period in between where sin exists. It doesn't give us clean answers for why if God is powerful, he doesn't stop every form of evil. It doesn't. And, and that's the thing that we wrestle with as, as believers. But where we go with that, okay, we, when we come to that, what do, we, where do we do, what do we do with it? What we do with it is we come back to, okay, who is God? Right? And, and, and if you can truly understand who God is, then that can truly put your sufferings in the proper light. And so here's just a, a, an analogy I heard someone use years ago. You could tell me that you'll believe that the Queen of England exists if she comes to your house for breakfast tomorrow. But is that going to prove that the Queen of England exists? Why not? She doesn't owe you anything. Because on an earthly power structure, she's more important than you are. Right? The lesser does not make demands of the greater. I cannot storm into the White House and tell the president what he needs to do. There's this thing called the Secret Service, and they will uh, helpfully show me the way out. And because in the power structure of politics, I am lesser, right? And so we can get this idea sometimes that, well, God owes me something. No, no, no. God is going to make, what God's going to do here with Job is he's going to make it very clear He's going to remind Job who he is. He's not going to remind Job of Job's suffering. He's going to take Job's eyes off of Job's suffering and put them on something much more worthwhile. So he says, Job, remember, 
where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, you, you didn't exist, right? Have you measured the earth yet, Job? Personally, yourself? And, and sometimes we can read this list. In chapter 38, he has 29 questions. In chapter 39, he has 14 questions. And he just fires these questions at Job. You know, bang, 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 bang. And we can read these sometimes and think about, like, oh yeah, I know the answer to that question now, right? Uh, who stretched the line on it? Well, the earth's about 25,000 miles around. Uh, but wait a second. How many of us, sometimes it's, it's a good exercise to go through and read these things and figure out how many of these answers you know experientially, right? I know that the earth is about 25,000 miles around the equator because I read it somewhere. I haven't walked it. I haven't measured it, right? I, I, I'm taking it on somebody else's word. So how many of these things do I actually know, okay? The Lord is going to, and, and, and what's the answer? The answer is we know nothing. We are completely clueless, but the Lord knows all of these things. And there's some things in here even that we still don't know. Even the best scientific research that does not have a good answer for. We still don't even know, we don't even know what light is scientifically. Because it has these like, you know, sometimes it's a wave, sometimes it's a particle. Like it's just, it's something, right? It's very real. Uh, we need it. We, we have it. We exist with it. But what is it really? Nobody knows. Um, so God goes on these list of questions and and so he starts just firing them away. He says, uh, who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Who, who put the boundaries on land and sea? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Did you ever like think about the fact, Job, that I'm like clothing the earth in clouds? Yeah, you know, you can make a piece of clothing. I can clothe the earth. Um, I set a bolt in doors and said, thus far you shall come but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Job, I can actually make the tide I can decide high tide and low tide. Now, what are you going to do about that? And what, what are your abilities in the tide-moving department? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? When was the last time you made the sun come up? When was the last time you made the moon come up? Anybody? Job, when, when, when did you do that? Because remember, you told me that you had some stuff you wanted to remind me of. And so he's going on and... Um, he says can, in verse 31, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? He's talking about, uh, you know, if you think, it's a great picture. I looked it up today. So Orion is the constellation up in the stars, and he's got this belt. It's, people kind of interpret it as the shape of a, of a warrior. He's got a belt. It's three stars in a row. The closest star of those three is five quadrillion miles away. That's the closest one. The farthest one is about double that. Five quadrillion. The human brain can't even really comprehend what exactly five quadrillion miles is. Okay, if you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take you about 800 years to get to that star. That's, a, that's pretty far away, right? And, and, and this is, again, so God is, you know, he's, he's really he's expanding Job's mind and saying, Job, you are, you know, you are zeroing in on you right now and all of your suffering. But let's back up a second. Let's, let's see sort of the big picture. And so God goes on like this, uh, 38, 39, 40, 41. He's, he's calling to mind these things for Job. And uh, chapter 42, basically, it's Job's turn to talk. And Job says, then in chapter 42, verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. 
things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. And Job thought he needed answers from God. And what Job really needed was to experience God. And that really, in a lot of ways, is what we have to understand what, what we'll do with suffering. Because so often the temptation is uh, what Job struggled with, to say, God needs to tell me why. And God doesn't let us go through suffering necessarily to give us answers. That's not the purpose. The purpose of suffering is for us to know God. And so, so Job goes through this. He says, okay, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Right? I knew about you, but now I know you. And at that point, Job begins to pray for his friends, and, and you know, the Lord deals with them because basically they were giving Job bad counsel. Job prays for them, and then the Lord starts to restore things. And Job's story ends beautifully. The Lord restores everything that was lost, and, and it's a great story. But that transformation happened when Job experienced God, right? When Job experienced a personal transformation from, okay, I know about God to now I, I really know God. And that's the point. Job didn't need answers. Job needed God. And, and, and so, so that is what we do. That's really, that's what we do with suffering is we look at it as a means of understanding this is an opportunity for me to encounter God. And, and what that does, that does not deny the reality of it. That doesn't deny the pain of it. That does not deny the very real, like, present tense of it, right? But suffering is doing something, okay? And, and, and I love, I was actually gonna, I was gonna bring it, but I completely forgot because I do things like that. Um, I have a board in my shop. I build guitars, and I have a board that I keep in the shop only as a personal reminder because it was a nice board. It came, it was a board from Africa. I paid like $40 for it. Uh, it's a nice, expensive, beautiful board. And it is worthless. Because to make a guitar, you have to bend the wood. And that board was insistent that it wanted to exist as a straight board. It was not going to curve. And so it shattered. That board is in about five different pieces. And, and the only thing I can do with it is burn it, truthfully. It's a loss of a board. But I still needed to make the guitar because I had an order for it. So I got a second board that was truthfully not as pretty, but it was a board that was willing to conform to what I wanted to do because I had a big picture in mind, right? I was building a guitar. I didn't need a straight board. I needed a board that was willing to do what I wanted it to do because I saw a much bigger picture. And suffering is like that. You know, to bend a board... Uh, you clamp it between two sheets of metal with a heating blanket. You heat it up to about 200 degrees after you sand it down with like 120 grit sandpaper to where it's super thin, it's super fragile. And then you put it into this thing that looks like a combination like wine press torture chamber and basically you squeeze the life out of it until it's in the shape you want. That's how you, that's how you create the side of a guitar. That's how you create that curve. Well, if a board says, I refuse to allow this to happen, the board shatters. If a board is willing to, you know, if the grain structure of the wood is w willing, it turns into a guitar. 
A guitar, then, is something that you put strings on and it has a voice, and it's used for a lot of purposes. I mean, a guitar, you know, we used one tonight. We used it in worshiping the Lord. It's part of something much bigger than a straight board. And that's what suffering is like, right? Suffering, uh, you know, it's like pruning a tree. You prune a tree so that it bears more fruit. Suffering is when there's a loss of something, whether it's a loss of hope or a loss of a relationship or a loss of funds or finances. It's the loss of something, and the loss of something and is always for the improvement or betterment of something, right? If, if suffering happens, it's because the Lord has a plan. And Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, he uses the metaphor of a seed breaking out of the ground. He says that seed has to die. You know, think of all the, the energy that when it's a, you know, take an acorn and, and before it bursts out of the ground, all that DNA is packed in there, all that potential, but it has got to bust out of that shell. And it's going to get wet, and it's going to get buried, it's going to get chewed on by squirrels. It's going to have all that stuff happen to it, and then finally it's going to spring out. And it's going to finally crack through that husk, and then it can become a tree. And what went into the ground is not the same as what comes out of the ground, right? Our lives are much like that. Paul says, you know, we're living this life like a seed. We're going to be resurrected like the plant, right? We're, we're built for eternity. The Lord has a plan that is so much bigger than this earth, and along the way, suffering does sometimes happen, but it happens because God is doing something way bigger, right? The oak tree, you know, you get an oak tree that's whatever, 100 feet tall and 100 feet across, and it's got a trunk that you can't get three people to reach around, okay? That oak tree does not look at an acorn and say, wow, look at the suffering it's going through. I just don't know if it's going to be worth it. That oak looks at the acorn and says, just wait till it gets on the other side, right? Suffering is like that. God is shaping us into something because he loves us. And, you know, and that's really, that's the, that is the beautiful thing about the book of Job, is that suffer, it never denies the reality of suffering, but it also never denies the presence of God, the power of God, the love of God, Right? All those things are there in the book of Job. God is doing something in Job's life, and, that, and, and he's trying to transform Job because he doesn't want Job to know about God. God wants Job to know him because Job was created for a relationship with God, not for a, a bunch of head knowledge about God. And each one of us are created for a relationship with God. We are not created to have head knowledge about the Lord. And so, so if we are suffering, you know, and, and if you're not, like in the middle of something hard tonight, that's great. Praise the Lord. Do what Job did at the beginning of the book, right? Pray for people. Be diligent, be, be responsible, and, and continue to, you know, walk in victory. But if you are suffering with something, then understand what it is. It's an opportunity. And it doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, fake yourself into like, oh, this is so fun. I'm suffering for Jesus. Yay. No, no, no. We're not talking about self-delusion. We're talking about orienting ourselves not in how bad the suffering is but in who God is right how big God is uh you know there's that star that's however many miles away and I think it's David in the psalm said heaven can't hold you heaven isn't big enough to hold God and one of the close stars in the constellation of Orion is five quadrillion miles away that's pretty big God right? God is pretty big. The problem with most of us when we suffer is that we reduce God in our minds to where he's this person who owes us an explanation. He owes us something. And, and that is what God is trying to say is, no, 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 no. 
I don't owe you anything, but I love you to death. And so I want this to be a part of the process of you knowing me. And so suffering is an invitation. It's an opportunity from the Lord to grow. It doesn't make it fun, necessarily, but it makes it incredibly rich. And it's something that we will be able to look back on and say, oh, I did not enjoy that. I did not like going through that at all. But I can see how God used it to bring me to a new point because God is interested in transforming us, right? He did not save us so we could stay in our sins. He did not save us so we could be, you know, have our best life now. He saved us for eternity. He saved us to have fellowship with him, to know him on a personal level. That's what Job's about. It's about encountering God and knowing God personally, right? So next week is going to be the book of Psalms in overview form, uh, which would be kind of interesting. But it'll also be a lot of fun because Psalms, in a sense, is a lot like Job. It's very honest. It's very much, you know, the highs and lows of serving the Lord. And it's not denying any element of it. All the joy and all the pain is totally there in the book of Psalms. And so I think it's going to be fantastic. And I think the Lord... uh, really wants to teach all of us something through that. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that, uh, that you would help us to comprehend it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would uh, just stir us up with a hunger to know it more, to know you more. God, we pray for uh, just a greater awareness of your working in our lives, a greater understanding of what you're doing. We pray that you would give us the um, Give us the perseverance to continue in those times of suffering, to trust that our Redeemer lives and to believe in resurrection, uh, to hold on to the hope of eternity. I pray that you would just fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, regardless of our circumstance or our situation. I pray that we would uh, live lives looking to Jesus. And so as we wrap up, God, we do ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.